Okay, everybody. I hesitate to even say anything because um, those kinds of conversations that I'm just kind of hearing in the background, that's the stuff that makes of uh, the relationships that are so full of life and grateful for it. Um, and we can continue those conversations too. Um, I'm going to read now from the Gospel of Matthew. <coughs> Excuse me. This is in the same grouping of text in Matthew where we've been for a while. Jesus has um, come into Jerusalem for Passover along with throngs of other people. Jesus has been a controversial figure his entire ministry perceived by the religious elite, the corrupt religious elite that was desperate to hold on to power for all kinds of reasons. It's been perceived as a singular threat to them. Um, they're perceiving that threat to be even more palpable, more imminent, as uh, Passover is always a time when God's people are remembering the promise of a Messiah. Maybe Jesus is the Messiah. They don't want Jesus to be the Messiah. So it's really an ugly mess where we've been recently in Matthew. Um, and here, uh, this is right after where we were last week, where Jesus is given that question about the greatest commandment. And now that ended, that section ended where uh, Matthew tells us that uh, when Jesus gave the answer that he did, people were afraid to ask him any more questions because he just knocked every one of them out of the park and made them look silly. Uh, so now Jesus says, okay, now I'm going to ask, now I'm going to talk to you. But he's really talking to his disciples with the Pharisees overhearing, okay? Um, and here we are. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, the scribes and Pharisees, sit on Moses' seat. Therefore, do whatever they teach you and follow it, but do not do as they do, for they do not practice what they teach. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on the shoulders of others, but they themselves are unwilling to lift a finger to move them. They do all their deeds to be seen by others, for they make their Phylacteries broad and their fringes long. They love to have the place of honor at banquets and the best seats in the synagogues and to be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and to have people call them rabbi. But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher and you are all brothers and sisters. And call no one your father on earth, for you have one father, the one in heaven. Nor are you to be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Messiah. The greatest among you will be your servant. All who exalt themselves will be humbled, and all who humble themselves will be exalted. The gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Open our ears, O Lord, that we would hear the gospel, shape our hearts in response to your word we might live more fully into the pattern of Jesus' life, that cross-shaped pattern, self-giving love, seeing the world through Jesus' eyes. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. 
Recently, I was at a meeting uh, of the city classes. I guess technically it's called the classes of the city. Uh, I was there representing Grace Chicago Church along with one of our elders, Daniel Toulier. <clears throat> what is a classis, you might ask? Uh, several of you, I'm sure, know. Actually, the name is from the Latin word for a fleet of ships. And I always joke that you know you're in a kind of an old denomination when the, the word for the group of churches that gather together, typically locally, although our classis is joined together by common... Uh, way of approaching ministry in the city and consists of churches all over the country. That's why it's called the city classes. But you know you're in a kind of old denomination when it's the Latin name for fleet of ships. We're all sailing together uh, along the way uh, as part of the Reformed Church in America. So I, I went to this meeting. It was a wonderful meeting. So many wonderful people. No church is quite like another. No church leader is quite like another. But we're all pulling in the same big picture direction together and learning from each other. One of the exercises that we did, I guess this might be called team building in a, uh, in a corporate setting. One of the exercises we did was to break into small groups, I think of about six people or so, and take turns telling our stories to each other, particularly our faith journeys, so to speak. It was wonderful. There were similarities and lots of differences. What held all these stories together was the common experience of God's love and the common experience of a maturation in our understanding of God's love over time and our understanding of its implications. It was just delightful to hear people. I mean, this is the religious tradition I grew up in, this was people sharing their testimonies with each other, right? What God had done in their lives. And I'm telling you, not one was like another, except all of them were alike, if that makes sense, right? Because all of them had to do with, with God finding them and them finding God. And I, um, it came time to tell my story. I decided to talk about it as a lifelong journey to try and keep up with the welcome of God. A lifetime journey of trying to keep up with the welcome of God. Um, that phrase, keeping up with the welcome of God, I stole that from my friend Aaron Keeker, who uses it to describe the journey of the church through history. Journey of the church as, in one sense, struggle to keep up with the welcome of God. What I mean by a lifelong journey to try and keep up with the welcome of God is that I have seen over decades and decades of following Jesus that Jesus is always more welcoming than I am. Hurts to say, right? Hurt in a good way, right, to acknowledge that. But yeah, I mean, that's one of the themes of my life to realize that Jesus is always more ready to welcome than I am. But I've also seen, thankfully, over those same years, that God is gracious and God is merciful. Over time, he has moved me closer to Jesus' welcome. 
I am a work in progress. I begin with this little anecdote this morning because I just want to point out something that's obvious about Jesus' mission. But sometimes it is one of those obvious things, but I can't see the forest for the trees kind of thing. Here it is. Jesus never has to try and keep up with the welcome of God, right? And that's because Jesus is the welcome of God. Jesus is the welcome of God. Jesus' mission, as seen in everything that he did and everything that he said, was for the purpose of enabling people to know God's magnificent and welcoming love in the same way, the same way that he did. That he did. And when he sees human beings trying to manage God's welcome, limit it by by putting up obstacles to people seeing and experiencing it, Jesus gets upset. And Jesus' beef with the Pharisees is around that. Interestingly, of all the groups that held power in the religious establishment of Jesus' day, it was the Pharisees who Jesus in some ways had the most in common with. The Pharisees represented a movement to call the nation to a repentant faithfulness to God's ways as presented in Old Testament law and in the prophets. Jesus did as well. Jesus what did as well? Jesus had a program to call God's people to repentance and renewal as well. So categorically, had more in common with the Pharisees than, say, other groups in religious leadership at the time. And he makes that clear, Jesus does, when he says things like, I did not come to replace the Old Testament law and the prophets, but I came to fulfill it. The Pharisees wanted the renewal of Israel for God's people to be faithful to the ways of their God. Jesus wanted the very same thing. But, as Richard Bauckham points out in his great little book, and I'm telling you, it's a great little book, and it's so cool because he spells neighbor with an O-U-R in it, which is when you can tell that in my world anyway, that's when the scholarship gets serious because it came from somebody who went from, to Oxford and Cambridge and all that. Uh, anyway, this is a great little book, and it's called um, Jesus, A Very Short Introduction. But I'm just going to paraphrase from it here just a little bit to show the distinction, and it's another one of those forest for the trees kind of thing, because it's obvious in one way, but it's worth calling out specifically even though the Pharisees and Jesus had essentially categorically the same program for Israel, repentance, renewal, refreshing and following God's law and the prophets, they had radically different visions of what renewal meant. Radically different visions for what renewal meant. And that's why... <clears throat> That's why more than with any other group, Jesus clashed so often 
with the Pharisees. It's sort of like the Pharisees desperate to hold on to power, like sniff it out that, you know, he's almost one of us, but he really isn't. And they were terrified that he was going to capture the imagination of the people in a way that they hadn't. Last week we witnessed one such clash when one of the people in their group, a scribe, expert in the law, gave Jesus a question designed to draw him into a debatable point that would make him perhaps, maybe if he answered in a certain way, look not quite so wise as he usually looked. The question was, of course, which of the Old Testament laws is the greatest? Jesus' answer is in many ways an explanation, and I mentioned this last week, Jesus' answer to that question in many ways is an explanation of why he has said everything he has said up to that point and done everything that he had done up to that point. It's sort of like, I can't remember the name of the movie now. Shoot, at the very end of the movie, you know, there's this looking back at the whole movie that led up to that point, and, um, and all of a sudden everything falls into place, right? It's sort of like what Jesus, that's probably a bunch of movies, right? <laughs> Everybody probably, you, you movie fans, you're probably all thinking of different ones, and I'm sure you're right. Um, usual suspects. That was what I was thinking of. Anyway, um, this is that moment in Matthew's gospel, at least, where when Jesus explains, you know, the answer to this question, what's the greatest law, it's all of a sudden you can see, okay, that's why he did this, that's why he did that, that's why he said this, that's why he said that. What he said is that the greatest commandment was what Israelites call, and still do, the Shema, found in Deuteronomy. That would have not been surprising. The Shema, which basically just means to hear, but, um, but in, in, in the Jewish world and in the Christian world as well, that hear, like when Jesus says, listen, 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 and, and when he says hear, invitation to hear, it means the same thing as follow or obey, okay? Um, that was the Shema from Deuteronomy. was what every faithful Israelite prayed daily. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. Keep these words that I am commanding you today in your heart. Recite them to your children and talk about them when you're at home and when you're away. When you lie down and when you rise, bind them as a sign on your hand. Fix them as an emblem on your forehead. Write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. That would not have particularly surprised the scribe who asked him that Jesus would have answered that way, up to that point at least. He's probably hoping Jesus would stop there because if, if he, Jesus had stopped there, he would have probably had the opportunity to lure Jesus or try to lure Jesus into some esoteric debate about, well, what about this? What about that? Jesus doesn't stop there, though. That was what was novel. Jesus married the passage from Deuteronomy, the Shema, to another portion of the law from Leviticus, where God's people are taught to love their neighbors as themselves. And then the revolutionary thing that Jesus did was to say that these two commandments, when taken in tandem, 
they are foundational to understanding the very meaning of what God is doing in the world and what God will do in the world in the future. The guide for understanding the meaning and purpose of the rest of everything that God says in the Old Testament and the clue to everything that God will do in the future through the church. Jesus said that's what he means when he says in different places, um, all the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments, these love commandments here, this portion of Matthew. But earlier he said, I've come to fulfill the law and the prophets. So in other words, Jesus embodies those laws as well. And then through Jesus' empowering presence in the church, gives that gift to the church in a way that is the guide to the church to live into the future that God has for the church, a future guided by those twin love commands. So, looking backwards, um, this is why I said, and I know it's a little bit of review from last week, but you can't really understand the significance of why Jesus is upset with the Pharisees unless you understand it in the context of the love command and how it is already guiding Jesus in his ministry. It's Jesus' understanding of the law and prophets read through the love commands that guided Jesus in everything that he said and did. This is why Jesus is so comfortable with flexible guidelines of what it meant to keep the Sabbath holy this is why Jesus is so comfortable sharing the table with anyone, right? Um, and this is why Jesus expands the love your neighbor command in Leviticus, which was originally focused on love your neighbor, meaning love your fellow Israelite. Jesus expands that to love your enemy. Love your enemy. Who would that be? Well, the Romans, number one, uh, and a whole lot of other people as well. That approach that Jesus took to reading the Law and Prophets, embodying the Law and Prophets in the way that he did, <coughs> was almost exactly, completely opposite to the approach of the Pharisees. The Pharisees' approach to renew Israel was to double down on the purity laws and even go beyond what those Old Testament laws required. Under Roman oppression, the Pharisees focused on what, in their view, would keep God's people holy and worthy of rescue, worthy of emancipation from Roman rule. And for them, it boiled down to ritual purity. They didn't eat with people who might not have tithed correctly or ritually washed correctly. And if you don't know and you've got that mindset going on, you don't ask because you don't trust that they will give you the right answer. So you just mm, kind of shrink down into this holy huddle. They didn't eat either with people they regarded as sinful, which for them amounted to only certain kinds of cherry-picked sins 
they were singled out as reasons to exclude ordinary people from fellowship. Think tax collector, prostitute, the names that get thrown back at Jesus as people he shouldn't be eating with, right? And with regard to the Sabbath, they went beyond even what the Old Testament required in keeping the Sabbath holy. And that was why they were so upset when Jesus would do things like pick corn on the Sabbath when his disciples were hungry, or why he would heal on the Sabbath when it wasn't a life-threatening circumstance. Sabbath, Jesus said, was made for human beings, not the other way around. The Pharisees did all these things, this doubling down on ritual purity, while ignoring the weightier laws of justice, mercy, and compassion. And they did all of this while ignoring the sins in their own hearts, which might be easy to hide, but they're the sort of sins that destroy one's capacity to love God, oneself, and one's neighbor. Envy, hatred, self-righteousness, etc. Plot to kill Jesus as well. This is why Jesus is upset with the Pharisees. This is not an intellectual debate and just that. This is a matter of life and death for whether people can understand and know God's love for them. It's worth being upset about. Jesus came to, to bring renewal by revealing in his words, deeds, and importantly in himself, that God is on the move to do what God always intended to do through God's people, namely to bring the love and welcome of God to all people, to enable all people to know God the Father like Jesus knows God the Father. The Pharisees, consumed by righteousness and self-confidence, were not able to see the beauty that was in Jesus. They only experienced him as a threat to their hold on power. What is there for us in all of this? Well, it will be something different for each of us, okay? That's obvious, but the only way we'll find out is if we can imagine that we are capable of the same sorts of puny visions of what God wants to do in the world and who God wants to do it with, that the Pharisees were capable of and actually embodied. That's why Jesus says that um, they sit on Moses' seat, uh, so do what they say. What he means there is they're reading the law, they're reading the Old Testament, do what it is that you hear there, but don't do as they do. And this is stunning, right? This is stunning because they don't understand what they're saying. And they make it obvious that they don't understand what they're saying by how they're living. So for us, the question is not, uh, or the posture we have when we hear this is not, I'm so glad I'm not like the Pharisees. The right way to approach it and if we're hearing the gospel in the right way this morning, would be to say, how am I like the Pharisees? 
in what way do I do things that limit the welcome of God, that make it hard for people to see the love of God? In what ways have I let human political narratives shape my understanding of how to live in ways that put me out of touch with God's love or maybe out of touch with the people that I need to love? And, friends, sisters, brothers, I say it because I know it. We can become peacocks, strutting our self-righteous stuff in the same way that Jesus gives this caricature of the Pharisees walking around, wanting to be greeted, wanting to be admired, wearing all the right religious symbols and all that. In our own way, we can become just like that. The only way not to is to acknowledge that we can and we do and to ask God to enable us to know God's welcome like Jesus knows God's welcome. To know God's radical love for all people like Jesus knows God's radical love for all people. To ask God to enable us to figure out how to live with our neighbors and more importantly how to love them in our day-to-day lives. And may God give us the grace to do all those things. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, amen.